It's a real joy for me to be here, and this church is, is representative of, of the success stories of multitudes of churches in New York that people don't know the, the, the narrative. They don't understand the story behind the churches that have made this city a great city and have served the communities. There's not too many people and churches that could have weathered the storms that you've gone through in the past 10 years and all the different processes that you have experienced and had to endure as well. And it's the process that God is after, not the product, because God could easily, you know, replace a building and just put you in there. But when you do that, you don't become the people you're supposed to be. And so through all these tests, God is able to vet people out and basically start again. It's like a rebuilding process with the remnant of people that are really serious and committed to the vision of the house. I'm very proud of Apostle Victor. I'm, a, I'm proud of the family of God here. I'm proud of the leaders. I know many of you leaders for, for many years, more than 10 years and some of the leaders that were sent out, I know, and stay in fellowship with. Some of the ones that were thrown out, I don't know where they are, but I'm kidding. And, uh, and this is another phase in rebuilding because every time you achieve another important goal, and this is a huge goal of owning your own property, owning your own building, it's also another phase of, of, of building. So... I'm here to encourage you and also give some fatherly instruction in terms of what to do to be successful. So my goal for, for this message today is to motivate all of you through the book of Nehemiah. So if you could turn there, and what I want to talk about is keys to activation and implementation for vision. Keys to activation and implementation for vision. And so the book of Nehemiah is an outstanding book for going from a compelling vision to its activation and implementation. Nehemiah was a type of a master builder. Paul the Apostle identified himself as a master builder in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 to 14. A master builder has to know how to utilize teams, motivate the masses, bring commitment through conviction, the leadership ability through the uh, vision of the church results in rebuilding, and you're in rebuilding process. And in Nehemiah, how to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and the methods that are taught and illustrated in this book are replicatable. They are able to be reproduced by us. That's why God put that book in the Bible. And so let's just pray a minute. Father, we pray that you would give us your wisdom and understanding, that you would help us to be motivated to know what you want us to do next. God, that we'd be open to hear what the Spirit is saying to this great church, and that we would not only hear, but we would allow you to put fire and to put conviction and activation inside of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 
Okay, so we're going to read Nehemiah. We're going to go through parts of the book. It's 12 chapters. Could be 14 chapters, 12 at least. And we're going to go through parts of each of uh, the main chapters. So Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3. It says, the, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. It says, now it happened in the month of Chislev, the 20th year, I was in Susa, the capital, that's Persia, modern day Iran. And Hanani, one of my brothers, in other words, a brother meaning a Jew, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked or I inquired concerning the state of the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, meaning when Nebuchadnezzar came into Babylon, I mean came from Babylon into Judah in 597 B.C., they ravaged the nation and took the captives. Uh, they basically took all of the uh, leaders, all the children of the leaders, all the most educated, the most wealthiest. They took the ones who had the ability to lead the nation and they transported them into Babylon to train them so that they could be leaders in a foreign country to benefit that country. And that's where the book of Daniel comes in. So when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel was one of the chief children of leaders that what you might call the aristocracy of Israel, of Judah, and he was taken captive. And so Nehemiah is fast-forwarded into the future, uh, several years into the future after the book of Daniel, and by this time, Babylon had fallen, and Persia came, and, and this is still recorded in the book of Daniel. You read Daniel chapter 6, Darius the Mede became the first king of, Babel, of uh, uh, Persia, modern-day Iran. Um, and so, after Darius, we see this king that is dealing with uh, Nehemiah. So, uh, this took place several years after the initial attack of uh, Babylon. So we, we're thinking this is around 540 A.D., 545. So it's about 50 years later after the book of Daniel was written. So Nehemiah is trying to find out what happened to the Jews that escaped and were not taken as exiles. So they said to me, the remnant... That is to say, those who escaped, that stayed in the province of Jerusalem, is in great trouble and shame. Not only that, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates were destroyed by fire. And so, in our modern society, we don't understand the importance of walls, because we have airplanes, so walls don't mean anything. But before the days of airplanes and tanks and rocket launches and all this, basically a city was only protected by the strength of its wall. And the gate was where people were let in and out, and that's where the king, the elders of a city met 
because that was the place of power. That's what controlled commerce. That controlled the you know, military, controlled everything. So the gate and the wall represents everything in those days. It would be like our White House. So when it said the wall was uh, destroyed, the gates burned by fire, basically was saying they didn't have any defense. They didn't have any honor left. There was nothing left that showed their autonomy or their identity as a people and as a, as a nation. As we will see, the, per, the Persians had a different strategy than the Babylonians. The Babylonians would ravage a nation, take their best, and bring them into uh, Babylon, and then they would take some of their best from Babylon and put them in their foreign nation. That was how they controlled the foreign nation. Well, the Persians, the Iranians, reversed that. They literally let the people go back into their own land, and they felt like those people would be um, loyal to Persia, and they let them rebuild their own land and, and be a part of the, 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 the empire by having their own identity but still have loyalty. So they reversed it, and we'll see that Nehemiah was able to go back to his own land because of that strategy of the Persians. And so what is the first point here? Before we could really have vision, number one, we need to assess the true condition of our people and our nation and our community, right? And this may not sound like a very profound point, but it really is because most people are living in delusion. Most people are not acknowledging the true state. One of the most important jobs of a leader is to articulate the needs, articulate what's really going on, to really be in touch with the community, in touch with the city, in touch with the people, to walk where they walk, to eat what they eat, to feel what they feel. And so Nehemiah uh, learned through conversation. Sometimes we think the only way we learn is by reading, but you learn probably 85% of what you know through observation. Your mind is always collecting data. And if you, you're, you're not in your own world and just thinking of foolishness or just on you know, Twitter or Instagram or whatever the things are today, and you're observing, it's amazing all the things you could pick up. And it's amazing if you're a person of prayer in the spirit, things that God tells you. That's why uh, when we started prayer walking in our neighborhood years ago, it did something to us. We were able to understand our people. Um, our neighborhoods change all the time. And uh, sometimes I'll take a bike through my neighborhood, through different parts of the city, just to get a feel of what it's like. And, and I'm amazed at all the new things going on. So the first thing about vision that we need to know is we need to be self-aware. We need to ask questions. When I'm with somebody that knows more than me in a certain subject, which is often, I barrage them with questions. I learn more in one hour with a wise person or a person who's an expert in 10 years of trying to find out myself. And, uh, and that's why you need to have mentors. You need to have people you walk with. 
You need to have older people who have lived a long time or lived and have seasoned lives. And um, even if the older people aren't up to date in technology, they're proven and they've lived through situations in family and marriage and job and work and stress. And that's why the young people always need uh, the older people. You need to have a multi-generational congregation. So Nehemiah assessed the conditions. He wasn't in denial. Many people are in denial because they don't want to be obligated to do something. Right? They just want, and one of the things that the Roman Empire did to keep the people unaware of the dire needs and of the dire straits they were really in is right before the Roman Empire collapsed for about a hundred years, um, while it was getting really bad, they would have gladiator games, gladi gladiatorial games, and they would have traveling circuses, and they would give free bread out to the people. Sounds like today, doesn't it? The NFL, soccer, all entertainment, movies, everything. The Obama administration gives out free iPhones now. It's like free bread. It's, there's freebies, entitlements. Uh, people are just, you know, satiated with entertainment, with free this and free that, and we're being lulled to sleep, and we don't really know how bad it is. Uh, there are some talk shows that I've listened to as I've driven or watched on television at times, and they'll go out and they'll interview the average person on the street, and they ask them, who is the vice president of the United States? They didn't even know who it was. They asked one person, who is the first president of the United States? They said Abraham Lincoln. Right? And this is the, the, the culture we live in today. People are lost and not in space, on, in earth. And they don't know what's going on. And a leader has to tell you what's going on, whether you like it or not. So many people are drunk with entertainment, with social networking and media because it keeps them away from reality and medicates them from their pain. But getting drunk with wine only leads to debauchery, not to wisdom. Amen. Getting drunk with entertainment is just as bad as getting high on drugs. If you're constantly watching television, if you're constantly entertaining yourself, it's an addiction of medication, of escape, of trying not to be aware of what's going on. So a leader in a, a church gives self-awareness. Without knowing the truth, there could be no path to freedom. Harriet Tubman said once, I freed a thousand slaves, and there was another thousand I could have freed if they really knew they were slaves. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. If you don't know the truth, you can't even be free. So we need to be self-aware. Very few people are self-aware of themselves, never mind their community. And we need to start with ourselves. All right, number two, Nehemiah was moved inwardly and received a compelling vision to meet the need. It says in verse 3, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. 
and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so, if we're going to have an activation and implementation of vision, we need to be moved inwardly. It can't just be a disconnect from our emotions or our soul. It can't just be intellectual. It can't just be head knowledge. We have to be moved. God wants to touch our very heart. Our heart is the gate of our emotions and gate of our will. And whatever you're moved by, that's what you're going to do. Passion is the engine of vision. If you don't have passion, you won't be motivated to do anything. There are too many people that are in the church that are dispassionate, disconnected, and uncaring. Jesus was moved by compassion when he healed, when he preached. That was his engine. Um, and, and so many people in the church just come to church for self-satisfaction. They come to be blessed, but they don't come to be a blessing. And God wants to turn that around. As a new Christian, you have to come to be blessed because you don't know the difference between your right hand and your left. But there's some people saved for 20 years, and they're still coming to feel good. And, uh, of course, God wants to comfort us. There's nothing wrong with that. God gives us the good news. And we deal with a lot of tough realities, and sometimes we battle with discouragement. And so, of course, we come to be encouraged. But ultimately, if you don't come to be moved by other people's needs and to be a blessing, you will get bored and you will never reach your potential. And so it tells us in the book of Proverbs chapter 11, the one who waters will be watered himself. The key to not being bored and the key to grow after you're saved about a year or so is to serve others. When they tried to bring Jesus food, Jesus said, I've had meat to eat that you know not of. They said, what do you mean you had meat to eat? They didn't see a McDonald's hamburger in his hand. And uh, they were wondering what he meant. He said, my food is to do the will of my father. There are some people who say, Pastor, I'm not getting fed anymore. I'm thinking of leaving the church. I said, you're not getting fed because, not because the preaching isn't good. It's because you're sitting on your butt and you're not doing anything. doesn't matter how good the preaching is. If you don't get off your butt and start serving and start volunteering and start getting involved in the church, you're going to get bored because at the end of the day, you won't grow if you don't serve, if you don't volunteer. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, not to hear the will. He says, don't be hearers of the word because if you're not a doer and you're just a hearer, you are deceived. And so Nehemiah was moved inwardly and God wants to ignite your passion. Number three, in verse four, it says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, he continued fasting, and then it records an amazing prayer, quoting Old Testament covenantal sources, bringing out truth. Um, another point we could bring out is actually having the Bible as our main reference for, for life. So he really knew his scriptures. It wasn't like he was walking around with the Bible, he had it memorized in his heart because they didn't have Bibles in those days. So they would just hear it once in a while. They'd have scrolls uh, that some people had to read. But so he had the word in his heart. And basically, when you look at this, you see in verse 4 to 11 that before he tried to implement the vision, he prayed it through. He prayed it through. People and churches, and leaders, 
need to be people of much prayer. Because if you try to implement a vision without praying it through, then you've never won in the air. When we see what happened in some of the wars the United States has been in, which I'm not saying I was for them, I'm just bringing out a method. Uh, starting with the first war in Iraq, um, there was always an airstrike, a prolonged airstrike for two or three weeks to weaken the defenses before the ground troops went in. If they just sent the ground troops in, we would have lost a lot more than 3,000 men in, in 20 years. Uh, so they weakened the defenses, they demoralized their enemies, even though they weren't able to win the full battle without ground troops, but they just totally prepared the way so that the ground troops could come in and they could easily win. And relative to uh, what we accomplished, we didn't have that many deaths. It was amazing, especially the first uh, Iraqi uh, war that we had in 1990. So, um, what does that teach us? That we have to win the war in the air first. You have to pray. Um, any church or any organization or any Christian that tries to get things done without first winning it in the spirit, in the Holy Ghost, you're going to be very disappointed. I remember once I went with Pastor Padilla um, to a church growth conference, and this is early in the 90s, it might have even been 1990 or 92, I don't know when it was around there. And we went for three days to a church growth conference to a world-known teacher, and I won't mention the name. And we learned a lot of great things, but in the three days that they were talking about church growth, they did not mention prayer once as essential for church growth. They just talked about strategies. Now, maybe they assumed, you know, we already know about prayer. However, I would say if I was talking to their leadership, you're dealing with a lot of young ministers who are very influenced, uh, can be influenced by you. And if you don't talk about it just because you assume they're doing it, you're going to give them the impression that it wasn't important. So you at least need to bring out that you pray a lot. And so that wasn't part of the strategy at all. And so we have people that try to grow just from a corporate model of strategy and planning. And at the end of the day, you're going to get a crowd, but you're not going to get disciples. And you're not going to have what God wants. And God has called us to spend much time before him as individuals and as churches. Uh, we need to have victory in our own souls first, and then we can push through for other people. And I need to seek God every single morning. I try not to make appointments early in the morning if possible so I could spend enough time with God and then when I pray everything through that is a burden on my soul then when I go out I'm walking in great favor the victory is already there and it easily comes to pass but I'll tell you the truth um, if I didn't pray and I didn't seek God every day um, I would have never made it to this point I would have been destroyed already so Nehemiah knew before he tried anything is he prayed and we need to be people of much prayer. We need to have a lot of corporate prayer. Number four. And so one thing I want to say before we move on to number four. We find that godly leadership is a partnership with the divine. God plans so that we don't uh, do anything without him, but he doesn't do anything without us. Isn't that amazing? You might say, well, why do we got to pray? All right? Why do we got to pray? 
And there's uh, some people who are teaching a, a radical form of grace, and they don't think they need to pray. They, they just think, you know, things just come if they believe it. And, you know, you might say, well, why do we have to pray? God's already done it. The Bible says we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We've been, you know, everything is under our feet. Greater is he that is in us, etc. Yes, that's all true. But those are legal, positional things that we have. But in function, because we are so wicked in ourselves, because we are so weak in function, we don't experience that until we are connected and aligned with the divine. And it takes a lot of prayer to get us refocused, to get us refilled. We have to be continually filled with the Holy Ghost. And as we do that, then God could really bring those realities of what he'd done on the cross to pass. So you might say, well, why does God need us? Why don't he do I, You know, let me just say this. Why did God become a man to save us? Because he gave the first Adam legal authority over planet Earth. That is to say, he didn't give it to the angels, he didn't give it to the donkeys and the horses and the fish. He gave it to human beings. And because he gave the authority of the earth to human beings, when humanity fell into sin, in order to gain back the earth and in order to gain back the humans, and in order to take the authority from Satan back, he had to become a man. Which means from that point on, when he gave it to Adam, he made a commitment to not do anything on the earth without men. God himself bound himself so that he doesn't even have the legal authority to do certain things without our cooperation. And God could do anything, of course, but he chose to work through us so that we are partners, as Paul says, we are partners together with him. We are co-laborers together with God. It's an amazing thing, but it shows us that there are things that God will not do unless you do them. For example, God didn't appear to me to win me to Christ. There had to be a human to preach to me. Angels don't preach the gospel. Yes, there are some people say through visions, but after that vision, someone else has to explain it to them. Someone has to disciple them. Someone has to get them in a church. Someone said, well, I, I got saved through reading a tract. Yeah, but who wrote the tract? Not an angel, not a dog or a cat. So God uses people. And one of the primary ways he uses us is through speaking destiny out prophetically in the spirit, oftentimes after much groaning and warfare and travail and corporate prayer. There's certain things God won't even say to you unless you're in church. Because it says, He speaks, the Spirit speaks, right? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. There are certain things God won't say to you alone because He doesn't want you to be a lone ranger with your own $150 Bible. There are certain things God will not speak unless you are in prayer with the body of Christ. Because he says he speaks to the church. There are certain things he'll speak to you privately about destiny, but when it comes to corporate destiny, he will not speak to you alone. He will speak to the church. And if he only speaks to you, you have to submit it to the church for it to really be assessed. So we have to understand that there are certain things God will not do until we push it through in the Holy Ghost. This book that I'm coming out with uh, shows personal experiences where 
You know, I, I've had spirits of prayer, a spirit of prayer on me for hours at a time. And, and, and I knew that certain things weren't going to happen until I prayed that thing through. Sometimes I was in such agony, it was almost like I just came back from an aerobics class. And those spirit, those times of prayer that, that come upon me, uh, or have come upon me, are, are, were essential as I look back for certain things that, that took place. And I just know that if we don't give God that time, or we don't wait on God, it's just not going to happen. You might say, I have great natural ability. I have great calling. I know you do. But now you have to have great prayer to push it through. There's a lot more I could say about that. Number four. Nehemiah gathered all the human resources he needed based on his relationships. And so he was the cupbearer to the king. That means he was the king's most trusted confidant. The cupbearer was the person who drank the wine before the king did. And why was that a high position? Because they tried to poison the kings and assassinate them in order to take over and topple the government. And so whoever was the cupbearer was the one that was the most trustworthy. And whoever was the most trustworthy was going to be the one who was the, the one that the king bore his heart to. He's a confidant. So this man had probably the highest position in the whole empire besides the king himself. He was the cupbearer. He was always with the king. Uh, he always had a taste of food, taste of drink. Go first before the king came to make sure things are all right. And so the first thing Nehemiah did when he got this compelling vision from the Lord is he assessed his relationships, right? And all leaders, whether it's a pastor and all people in the church, need to pull on all their relationships to gather the supplies, connections needed to implement the vision. Everybody here has a constellation of relationships that they need to pull upon, right? And so the first thing he did, of course, is he went to the king. And he was able to get money. He was able to get safe passage. He was able to get a letter to go to rebuild the wall, to fulfill that vision. Every one of you are important. There are a lot of things needed still in this building. You might have connections with plumbers. You might have connection with an air conditioning person. You might have money that you know, you're saving for a rainy day. God says, give it now, and I'll bless you. There's so many things. There are, beyond money, there is connections and relationships. And so every church has to pull on the resources of everybody. Now, maybe you don't know somebody else because God said you're the one who has the resources, right? So I always believe that everything I ever need, I already have. I just got to discern who has it. It's right there. It's in front of me. It's never complicated. Whatever God has called me to do, he's already put me in the time, the place, the space, the age, the year, give me the friendships, the relationships, everything that I need to get to the next level, to fulfill the vision I already have. I just need to know who has it. I need to know where it is. And it has worked like that my whole life. So 
everybody in this church together, whether it's what you already own or have or people that you know, have what it takes. You don't need somebody to parachute in from the outside to get this building finished. You already have it. And you need to figure out how that's going to happen. You need to think about all the relationships you have. Most of the blessings I have never came from money. Uh, just people gave me things. They opened up doors. Sometimes I've sown a lot of money into the church, and it didn't come back in money. It came back in favor. Favor is worth more than money. The things that, you know, God has given me through relationships that if they charged me money for their time or their gifts, it would have been a lot more than I ever gave. So don't ever just think in terms of money. Think in terms of human resources. Who has the gifts? Who has the... There might be a... And I'm not saying you have a plumbing need here, but let's just use that as an example. Let's say there's a plumbing need here. Well, you might be a plumber. You could give you know, 20 hours of your time instead of uh, giving it somewhere else. You could carve out vacation time or whatever. In other words, it's going to take everybody in the house to fulfill. Not only the building is easy, the incredible, massive vision that God has for you to reach your city, for you to disciple, for you to reproduce, for you to be a blessing to nations, a blessing to families, a blessing to other churches, a blessing to every aspect of the calling of God in your life, that is going to take place through you guys bringing your resources to the table. Number five, Nehemiah succinctly articulated, or he simply and profoundly communicated the vision in a few sentences. When he finally shared his vision with leaders and with people, in Jerusalem, it says in chapter 2, verse 17, I said to them, you see the trouble that we are now in. You see Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build. And so Nehemiah basically told them, if I was to read that, and I just read it, what did it take, 30 seconds? Vision has to be like an elevator speech, articulated in a few words. It doesn't have to be complicated, right? It's just a few sentences, something that everybody could grasp. It becomes a motto. It becomes something and simply all Nehemiah did was say, what was the need? In one sentence, you see, Jerusalem is, the walls are down, the gates are burning with fire. What is the need? And then, what is the answer? Let's build the walls. What was the response? Let's arise and build. What became their motto? Let's arise and build. A lot of churches even have used that as a, as a motto. Let's arise and build. And so, you don't have to look for some deep, mysterious thing. It's too many Christians are looking for who has the mark on the beast uh, and when is the rapture going to take place and they're wasting their time with mystery riddles and puzzles and codes and, uh, you know, uh, the, the Isaiah predicted this and that and, uh, you know, how to financially get out of debt through the Bible code and, and you, you know, you give all this money to this stuff and you're looking for some kind of 
silver bullet to solve all your problems, and it's very, very basic. I believe we have to live in simplicity. God deals in simplicity. It's profound. It's simple. Vision is simple. You see the needs. You see what's going to happen if you don't step in the gap. God said he looked for a man among them who would stand in the gap, make up the hedge so he doesn't destroy the land, and it says he couldn't find anybody. There is a gap here. There's a gap in your community. There's a gap in families. There's a gap in the city. There's a gap in your life. There's a gap in other people's lives. All of us together can fill the gap. What you don't have, someone else has. The gifts that you don't have, someone else has. The gifts that you have, someone else doesn't have. You are someone else's deliverer. You're someone else's answer. You're someone else's problem solver. You are the one who has to carry the vision. It's not just saying, it's doing, it's embodying, it's incarnating, it's being the person that is the answer for the needs that are out there. Amen. And we make it so complicated. When someone starts talking to me about something that's too complicated, I just shut them right down. It's, if it's not simple and concise, I don't want to hear it. Are you hearing what I'm saying? People want to know the deep, deep things, and they can't even carry out the simple things in their own life. Right? They want to know who the Antichrist is, who has the mark of the beast, and they can't even manage their own house, and they're worried about that. Number six. Before I get to number six, let me just say, so the vision of the house has to be clear in your head. It tells us in Proverbs, if you don't have vision, the people are scattered. What does that mean? It means they're aimless, they're purposeless. What is the vision of the house? Someone asked you, what is the vision of the house? You need to know how to answer that because that is a guidepost. Of course, everyone has a similar vision in the church. If you, if you don't have a written vision statement, let's say a church didn't have a written vision statement, everybody basically has a vision statement from the Word of God. Make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor. So there's already enough there to be connected to. So we need to be connected to what God has already given us. Number six. Nehemiah refused to be distracted by opposition. How many know that you're going to have opposition? If you don't have opposition, it means you're not doing God's will. I remember one time somebody said to me, I, I preached in a, in a church. I won't mention the name of the church. You would know it. So I preached in this church, and I saw this lady that used to go to, uh, you know, another church, a friend of mine's church. And I said to her, what are you doing here? Because she was there for a long time. She was one of the core leaders of this church. And she said to me, oh, there was so much spiritual warfare in that church. Oh, I, I, you know, it was just too much friction, too much stress, too much warfare. So I came here. Because it's stable, it's calm, it's peaceable. God's just moving powerfully here. And I almost died laughing in her face. 
Because the day before she said that, the pastor of that church she's now in called me and said he's pulling his hands out of his head because this choir, the choir is fighting with the Sunday school director who's fighting with his wife, who's fighting with the school, who's fighting with this and that, and he's, he doesn't know what to do and he needs prayer and there's too much pressure. And so people who ran from the church because of the fire jumped into the frying pan, which is going to be another fire, Right? If you don't have spiritual warfare in a church, it means you're not doing God's will. And if you're personally not contending for the faith, and if you're not being attacked, that means you're already a prisoner of war. The devil's going to leave you alone if you're not doing anything. He's going to leave you alone if you're not afraid of you. If he's not afraid of you, he's not going to attack you. Right? You're known not only by the people who love you, but by the people who hate you. Paul was not only known in heaven, he was known in hell. In Acts 19, they tried to cast out devils. They said, through Paul, through the, the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They said, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who are you? And they beat him up. Right? If you're not known in hell, that means you don't have power in heaven. Right? So, a church that has been earmarked by God is going to also be earmarked by Satan. Which means you better have a lot of prayer, covenant. And I remember um, started this years ago. I'm no longer pastoring my church. But years ago, we would get our leaders together once a year and have communion with them. We'd make them sign a covenant. And in that covenant, they would have to commit to walking in the light with one another and with me and my wife. They'd have to walk in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him and him alone. Don't gossip. Don't tell someone else. Don't say, oh, I have a prayer need as an excuse to gossip. Go to that person and that person alone. Because we found out that communication and walking in the light with each other, walking in transparency and communication, gets rid of 90% of all satanic division in the church. So... That's so important. So Nehemiah had to deal with opposition. It says, Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, Gershom, they jeered and despised when they found out what he was doing, building the wall. They said, what is this thing you were doing? There'll be people who'll be mocking you. What kind of church are you in? Are you in a cult? What are you doing for God? What is that church doing? What are the credentials of your pastor, of your church? They try to mock us and jeer at us. Are you rebelling against the king? Then this is Nehemiah's answer. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. In other words, he just spoke the word of the Lord to them. He spoke the vision God gave he said, we will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And they didn't leave him alone. There was more opposition. Uh, I don't have to read all of that, but they continued to try to attack them. That's in chapter 2, 19 and 20, chapter 6, verse 2 and 4. So there's always going to be opposition. And one of the things you have to realize is... Satan doesn't come in a red suit and pitchfork. So when I say satanic attack, it doesn't just mean 
you know, Satan attacking your mind, or people gossiping against you, or trying to hurt you. If he knows he can't get you, he can't destroy you, then what he does is give you good opportunities. He tries to get you through distraction. He tries to stop you from focusing on the most important things in your life. Right? So, he may not be able to get you to fall into sexual immorality, but he might get you to play golf four days a week. He might get you to have a job opportunity. You'll make, you know, six figures. You'll be able to buy the house you always wanted. But a small little price. You won't spend time with your kids anymore. So he comes as an angel of light. He will try to distract you from being committed and giving your best to the work of God. And we need to always stay focused. A leader has to stay focused. My greatest temptation now in my stage of life in ministry is other ministry opportunities. It's other opportunities. You know, I'm not being tempted by the things of the flesh at this point. Not that I don't get tempted by it and not that I can't fall into a sin. Of course I can. I'm just like anybody else. But at this point, it's not an issue. It hasn't been an issue in my life. So the main thing that I get attacked with is too many opportunities. Even I could get burned out. It could even be great, great preaching opportunities. Recently, I got an opportunity to preach to 100,000 people in a stadium. But I turned it down with no problem. No problem. I never preached to that many. Well, you know, we had certain things in New York. We had more than that and some things that I was involved in. But I had an opportunity to preach to 100,000 people. I would have been probably the main speaker. That I never had before. I turned it down. Why? Because it would have taken time away, sacred time away from my wife and my family. My wife even told me to go. I said, no. My wife said, what? You can... I said, no. It was the week of between Christmas and New Year's. They wanted me to speak on December 31st. I said, no. My son's coming in with his wife. That's more important to me. And so you need to keep the main thing the main thing. I'll always have speaking engagements, but I won't always have my kids and my family. Right? And so there's always distractions. I see as a pastor for 30 years, and key leaders in the church working overtime for what? I don't know. Missing their calling. People constantly going on family picnics. I tell them, you know, have a family picnic on Saturday. People missing church. Because an aunt shows up right before they're going to leave and go to church. I said, bring the aunt to church. I tell my family, don't invite me to anything Sunday mornings. You want me to come, you won't get me there before 3 o'clock. And I said this before I was a pastor. I'm going to honor God. Just because I have family members that aren't God-honoring. Just because I have friends that aren't God-honoring. I'm not going to go to their standing. I have wives who say to me, oh, I stopped going to church because God showed me to spend time with my husband. 
God, show me if I love my husband, I'll win him. No, you'll backslide and be just like him. Of course you're supposed to love your husband. But you don't compromise going to church or reading the Bible or doing what God says to please your husband. You've got to be kidding me. Jesus hung out with the sinners, but he didn't sin. Jesus hung out with drunkards, but he didn't get drunk. So, we need to understand. Don't lose your soul. And don't be distracted. Churches need to be focused on the vision. Number seven, he utilized a team of volunteers committed to the cause. You read chapter three. It goes on and on and on and on of all the key people who led teams to build the wall. Your pastor needs you. Someone say, oh, but I'm not that anointed. You're anointed. First Corinthians 12 teaches us that the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the ear, because I don't hear, I don't need you. In other words, every single one of you are vital to the success of this vision. If you look at the list in chapter 3, it's huge. Hundreds of people were involved. Every person here is needed and necessary to make this church successful, to fulfill the vision that God has. And so we have a multiplicity of vision. Number eight, of ministry, multiplicity of ministry to fulfill the vision. Number eight, Nehemiah instilled courage during times of testing and threats to his men. In chapter 4, verse 8 to 12 and 14, um, there were attacks from people. They were trying to stop them from repairing the wall. There was confusion. Um, at one point, the leaders said in verse 10, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we cannot continue to build the wall. And our enemies said at the same time, they will not know or see when we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that same time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. You must come back. Basically, do you ever get in a situation where when one thing went wrong, major thing, five major things went wrong at the same time, right? So when it rains, it pours. That's not an accident. Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 12, that's the day of evil, to take your stand in the day of evil. Day could be a month, could be a year, could be an hour. It's basically a time of testing. Do you know for any vision to be successful, you're going to have to deal with great stress. It's going to have to be great problem solving. And one of the important marks of successful people is to be able to function in the midst of great stress and testing. There are times I have to get up to preach and I just went through hell. Hell! I didn't feel like preaching. I didn't feel like dealing with anybody for that matter. There was a period of three years where I was preaching under the anointing when I was in emotional pain that was so severe that I was praying and asking God to take my life. And if I could have taken my own life without going to hell, I would have done it already. I was walking in hell. But in that midst, God was faithful and he gave me the joy of the Lord. His presence was strong during that time. He never left me and I always enjoyed the sweet fellowship with the Lord. 
but in my emotions. See, your emotions and your spirit are different. In my spirit, I was in the joy of the Lord. I was connected to God. I was in the presence of God. But in my heart, in my emotions, I was in great, great pain, unending. and went on for three years. Almost lost everything. Everybody I ever trusted betrayed me. And it was something that I wouldn't wish on anybody, but I look back and I see that during that time, I grew in God. God was able to bring brokenness and humility into my life in the late 80s that no Bible study could do, no trying to humble myself could do. Sometimes you try to humble yourself, but we're so wicked, we're so filled with flesh that we can't even humble ourselves fully the way we're supposed to. So God has to help us a little by bringing us people that humble us. <laughs> or circumstances. It's like one guy said to me, I want to resign from the usher's ministry. I said, why? Because I can't get along with the head usher. I said, that's why God wants you to stay in the usher's ministry. <laughs> Jesus called Peter the devil when Peter tried to stop him from going to the cross. Stop him from pain. And he kissed Judas and called him his friend when he sent him to the cross. The ones that are sending you to the cross are your friends. Your greatest challenge in life hides your greatest destiny and calling. The very thing that you're trying to get away from is the key to your success. Satan is not stupid. He will attack you at the greatest point of your calling and challenge and your destiny. So one of the things that show where your destiny is is where you're getting attacked the most. Now, some of us are getting attacked in areas because we're giving Satan a foothold. I'm not talking about that. Because there are certain buttons Satan can push. You know, you're prone to pornography or gossip or this, that. So, you know, but... There are other areas where Satan tries to attack you is because he knows that that is where your destiny lies. So that your mess becomes your message. So that with the comfort you've received from God, you now comfort others. You have a testimony that can help others. Some of the greatest healing evangelists of the 20th century were dying of a disease like Kenneth Hagin. He had tuberculosis. Oral Roberts had... Uh, Something else, maybe TB as well. Incredible men of God who were healed from terminal diseases who then became healers. All of us are called to be wounded healers. And we have to learn to function in high-stress environments. We have to learn how to manage our own pain. And dysfunction. That doesn't mean we push it down. We get help, of course. We bring it to God. We get counseling. But at the same time, if you want a life without stress, pray and ask God to take you now. If you want a life without challenges, let God take you now. Because this side of heaven, it's the opposite. In heaven, there's no more crying. There's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. Here, there's sorrow. There's crying. There's pain. Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Isaiah said, you will go through the fires and not be burned. 
You will go through it. If you stop and give up, you're in it. You've got to keep going. So you go through it. And so Nehemiah instilled courage during times of stress. We need to remain calm during spiritual warfare and during times of crises. Number nine, he mobilized all the people as warriors. Everyone, if you read Nehemiah chapter 4, everyone had a sword in one hand and tools to build a wall in the other hand. Everybody was taking turns on the wall. Some people weren't sleeping at night so they could guard. In other words, they utilized every single person, which means that we need to utilize the whole church to do the work, the whole church to pray, the whole church to protect the pastor, the whole church to protect the leaders. Everybody was mobilized. Not only were they mobilized, there were systems of communication so that in an emergency they came. When there was a special meeting, they came. Someone might say, well, I was tired and I didn't go to church on Sunday. Right? I remember people saying to me, well, brother, my spirit was with you. And I said, next time bring your body with you and your spirit will be there too. On the upper room in Acts chapter 2, out of the over 500 that Jesus appeared to, only 120 were filled with the Holy Ghost. What did they all have in common? They showed up to the meeting. They were in the physical building. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So you say, well, you know, it's really hard. If it's not hard, then you don't belong here. Of course it's going to be hard. Of course it's going to be challenging. And of course... There has to be lines of communication. There are some people, there were some leaders I had. I told my leaders, on Saturday night, everybody has their cell phone on, and they have it next to their bed in case there's an emergency, in case something comes up. I don't want to hear that you took, you, 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 you know, you were decompressing and you took your phone off. If you're going to be a leader and you're serving with me and you have to be there the next day, have your phone on. In other words, there has to be lines of communication. Has to be ways that we respond. And if the pastor calls for a meeting, you show up. Every week, God is walking through the sanctuary, checking his people out. Every week, he's speaking. Every week, we're hearing what the Spirit is saying. Every week, we get a word from God. Every week, we give God space and room to speak. Someone might say, well, you know, I, I don't know what God is saying. Well, you don't give God a chance. You don't pray, you don't read, and you don't go to church regularly. One guy was upset at me because he says we don't use them in ministry. I said, you don't tithe, you don't come to church regularly. Another guy said to me, do you have a word from the law for me? I said, yeah, read the Bible. It's not rocket science. Another one said, uh, 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 I need a word from God. I, 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 I never met him before. I said, do you go to church? He said, no. I said, do you pray? He said, no. I said, you read the Bible? He said, no. I said, then do all three. And that's your word. <laughs> People are looking for all these profound answers. Are you submitted to authority? Who's your covering? Every apostle needs an apostle. Every pastor needs a pastor. If I ask you who your covering is, I hope you, you say who your covering is. You know who it is. Who's your overseer? Who's your shepherd? Every pastor that doesn't have an overseer is an accident waiting to happen. 
You might say, well, he's my overseer, but do you listen to him? No. So he's not your overseer. We have a membership in this church, right? We have church members. Every one of you have your own little group of members. Somebody leaves the church, they take 30 people with them. Guess what? That was their members. They were never connected to the church. They connected to that person. Who are you connected to? Your friend? Who are you loyal to? Your best friend? Your pastor? Your vision? You're going to be led by your best friend? Your best friend might be led by their feelings. It might be midlife crises. It might be hot flashes and they think it's a vision. It might be menopause. When men go through it. I've had close friends backslide. The guy who discipled me backslid. Does that mean I backslide? Close friends left the church. Close friends didn't do with the, you know, didn't go with the vision of the church. I stayed with the house. Somebody shake and say hallelujah. Most people are just committed to their own vision. And last but not least, well, there's two lasts but not leasts. I'll, I'll make this one quick. I know it's hot. It says the leaders were all committed to living in the place of their mission. In Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. I'm going to say that again. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. You might say, what's the big deal? <laughs> there were enemies. There was danger. There was rubble everywhere. It was the ghetto of ghettos. It was the hood. It was... Crazy dangerous. And it wasn't comfortable. The leaders stayed in the place of their calling. Then it said, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one of ten to live in Jerusalem. So they didn't just tie their money, they tied their people. And then it said, and then others willingly volunteered even though they weren't chosen by lot, to live in the city. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So they celebrated those who chose to live. And I'll tell you, it's a commitment to live in New York City. I have friends that have been telling me for 10 years, come to Dallas, come to Florida, come to this, come to that. You could sell your house, you can get three houses, you can live in a mansion. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to live in New York the rest of my life because I'm not pastoring a church now. It's not the same. So eventually I'm going to have to go where it's the easiest to travel. But for 34 years, I lived in a very, in the beginning, it was a very poor, very dangerous neighborhood. We saw transformation. The neighborhood's totally transformed. Now we saw, you could read that in my book, um, I think it's Kingdom Awakening, what happened in Sunset Park. But I went there, man. It was kids 13 years old with shotguns, killing people. I saw kids sh shot and bleeding in the streets. 
we went door to door. We had street meetings. I was protected by gang members. Some gang members were saved because they tried to assassinate me. They came when I was showing the cross and the switchblade all over the community in 1981. And they came because so many were getting saved that they wanted to kill me. They wanted to take me out. Two guys had big knives on them, and they were going to come up during the altar call and try to kill me, and they wanted to get saved. We had things like that take place on a regular basis. Um, we had uh, very dangerous situations, guys pulling out guns when we were showing movies and outreaches, and we had to tell them, put your gun away. We threw them out, and then they would bash our cars and attack us. I mean, it's crazy the stuff we lived through. Um, but within 15 years of constant door-to-door -door evangelism, I visited every door in the neighborhood with a team of people, constant witnessing day and night, prayer, getting pastors together. Sometimes we prayed about when to eat, not when to fast. Um, long water fasts, juice fasts, um, constant, uh, you know, rallying and preaching and all the stuff I could, can't even get into right now. Within 15 years, the real estate, there were abandoned buildings everywhere. There's no abandoned buildings. And now it's almost as expensive to live in my neighborhood as it is in Manhattan. The gang members either got saved, killed, or thrown in jail. It wasn't just because of our church, but we did rally a lot of churches to pray, to fast, to, to, uh, to rail against pornography. We closed triple X stores. We did different things. Um, and through a lot of different things, we saw some transformation. And we paid a price. There was a mental price, an emotional price. There was a price on our kids. But... I would rather be in God's will. That's the safest place. If God sends you to Iraq in the middle of a civil war, it's safer than living here. Wherever God's will is, that's, whatever your assignment is, that's where you're called to live. Right? And we have people, even our own church, for 20 years, even one of my leaders is talking about retirement, moving to Florida. He had a call in his life. Other people had calls in their life to preach, to even be full-time in church ministry, and they didn't take it so that they could have their, their retirement. And, uh, you know, look, they're good people, and I love them, and they've done great things in our church, but what could have happened? I don't know. Only God knows. You have to ask yourself a question. Are you obeying God in your assignment? One time I heard a stat about 15 years ago, I don't know how true it is today, that more than 50%, maybe 75% of the pastors who have churches in Harlem live in Long Island. I don't know if that's still true. I heard that in the 1990s. It's one thing to live amongst your people and suffer with them, and to have ownership, to know. Another thing to fly in, parachute in. And uh, now I'm not saying someone can't have a great church and be a great pastor if they don't live in the exact community. No, it's possible. There might be good reasons why they don't. But the bottom line is we have to be committed to our city, to our community, to our calling. If we're going to really be successful and please God. In closing, one of the scariest things... I could ever think about 
is when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because you know Christians will stand before Jesus as their judge. The wicked will stand before him in the great white throne judgment. They'll be judged for their works. But they'll all fail because we can't be saved by works. But then the Christians will be judged by their works for rewards, not salvation. Everyone's going to have to give an account of himself, Christian and non-Christian. And one of the scariest things I could ever think about is Jesus saying to me, Joe, you were very successful, but at the wrong assignment. What were you thinking? You did this, you did that, you did this, and you were successful, and you thought you did great, but do you know what you could have done if you'd really obeyed me? You let the voices of men drown out my voice. You let the love of money or you let comfort, you let this, that, and the other thing stop you from really giving all. You might be serving God now. You'll go to heaven. You might have a good life. But is it God's best? Are you really following God's assignment? When you meet Jesus... Will he say to you, well done? Or will he reprove you for missing your calling? Kenneth Hagin pastored a successful church. He had about four or 500 people. But he felt uneasy about it. He said it was like taking a bath with your socks on. It wasn't like he was doing something wrong, but he just felt a little uneasy. So finally, he, he took four days to fast and pray. And God said, you've been waiting on me for four days. I've been waiting on you for 12 years. He said, what are you doing being a pastor? He said, I called you to teach my people faith. He resigned the pastor and he just started teaching and boom, the rest is history. He changed the whole body of Christ. We don't agree with some of the things and some of the things there was some ignorance, but he changed the whole body of Christ. He became the most influential voice in the body of Christ for about 10 or 20 years. That would have never happened if he stayed in his comfort zone. Satan comes as an angel of light, not with a red suit and a pitchfork. Are you giving your all? Have you sold out all for the work of God, for the great vision God has given this house and this pastor? Are you using all your resources to pitch in? Are you doing everything you can to see God move See people blessed and see this work be successful. Are you a burden on your pastor or are you a blessing? Are you upholding his hands or are you tearing down his house? Are you obeying the assignment God has given you? Are you thinking of where you could be instead of where you are? People are constantly dreaming about retirement, about Florida, about this, that. And, oh, we had a rough winter. Who cares about the winter? There are people going to hell. There are people going to hell for eternity. 
There are people that don't have electricity. There are people that don't have running water. There are people that don't have any. When I go to Africa, there are people who walk for 30 miles barefoot to hear the preaching, to go to church on Sunday. And we're thinking about, oh, there's a little, I have to shovel snow or it's hard for me to find parking. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What can you exchange for your soul? What's more important than a soul? God has called you to arise and build. This is a great, great church. I go to a lot of houses. There are very few houses that have the, the philosophy and the stability of this church and the kind of leader that you have and leaders around them. There's great, great capacity, great vision, and great calling. The only thing that we need now is you to say, Lord, use me. Lord, send me. <laughs>